Let's bow. Father, again, we come before you and we thank you for this uh, morning. We thank you for uh, your son, Jesus, who died for us, who gave himself for us that uh, we might have life. And Father, I thank you that in your son, Jesus, uh, we have the forgiveness of sins and we now have been delivered from darkness into uh, the kingdom of your beloved son. Father, thank you that we can now hear your voice through your word and your spirit illumines and teaches us your word so that we might be able to, by your power, obey it. And I pray as we look into your word today that you would use it greatly. Convict us of areas that need to be convicted, exposed, Lord God, correct us. May we be willing to be corrected and may we be trained in righteousness Uh, taught so that we would be adequate, equipped for every good work. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been a believer for very long, you recognize that God does discipline his children and that we are, like children, uh, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And like children, we are disobedient at times. And when we are disobedient, God is a gracious God, a good God who loves his children and who disciplines his children. Now, the level of that discipline can go across the scale, depending on our response to that discipline. Well, today we're going to take a look as we begin looking at the verse-by-verse portion of the book of Jonah at Jonah's disobedience. And we're going to see that his disobedience, like ours at times, takes effort. It takes effort, but along with that effort, it also takes its toll on us. We're going to see in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we're going to have some life lessons from this book. So would you turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah, chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. Now, what do you think of when you think of the book of Jonah? Obviously, Non-believers think of a big fish, a whale tail, uh, a big story of a of a great fish swallowing a man, and certainly that's uh, uh, what a lot of people think of when they hear the word Jonah. Now, unfortunately, because so many try to simplify the word of God for children, the true uh, message of the book of Jonah gets obscured in the whale tail, and that's all that many remember is the whale tail. But we're going to see uh, today that Jonah is so much more than just a fish story. It is the spirit-inspired account of a disobedient prophet and God and a compassionate God who addresses the lack of compassion of his servant Jonah and maybe even us. And we're going to see that at times we are so unlike God that we are so unlike his character and God desires us to be like him. And so he needs to expose that. And he does that through his word. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Jonah chapter uh, 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, uh, before I read this, I want to share some context for the book of Jonah. Actually, let let me read it first here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, uh, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm upon the sea, so the ship was about to break up. Well, a little context for the book of Jonah. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we went through and basically gave an overview of the book. We gave a lot of context, and I'm just going to briefly touch on that. Um, you can get the CD or listen online if you want to understand more of what I shared a couple of weeks ago. But uh, as I've mentioned, there are all sorts of ideas out there concerning the book of Jonah. The so-called biblical scholars, or I would say unbiblical scholars of the History Channel and PBS and so on, uh, those devoid of the Spirit of God and thus God's wisdom, would say in an arrogant fashion it has to be too, it's too fanciful to be true. They would say those types of things. And then there are those who would claim to follow the Lord who would say, well, it's just an allegory, a story to convey truth. That it's not really true, but it conveys a truth from God. You'll see that in the dead mainline denominations. But in that, this is seriously erroneous because God's word, as we will see and understand, is inspired by him. And it is, it is his word from his very mouth. And so with that in mind, uh, you might remember that we saw last time when we were looking at this book that it begins with the phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And we also have that again in chapter 3, verse 1. And this is a standard phrase by the Lord when he speaks to, as we'll see, his prophets and servants in the Old Testament. And it's interesting to note that every time that he says this, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, it is speaking of a true account. It is not speaking of a story or, a, or an allegory or a parable. It's actually coming. He is speaking to the one that it says he is speaking to. And so here it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God is speaking to him in real time. Now, as we saw last time we were together, there are other places in Scripture that affirm that Jonah was a real prophet. Take, for instance, 2 Kings chapter 14. You can turn there, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 24. And speaking of uh, Jeroboam II and those evil kings of the northern uh, kingdom, it says, And he did evil, 2 Kings 14, 24, in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of the of the son of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, uh, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance as far as Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, uh, Amittai the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Jonah's a real guy. Jonah's a real servant of the Lord here, as we see. And he is also a prophet, and he was from Gath-Hefer. That's from the Galilee uh, region. And more importantly, the Lord Jesus himself affirms the historicity of this account. He affirms the reality of what happens and happened in the book of Jonah. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And so we're going to see if you have a problem with the book of Jonah and say it's not from God, it's made up or it's an allegory, then you have a problem with the word of God because the God of the word declared himself that it was true. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him and said, Teacher, 
we want to see a sign from you. Well, sounds like modern day churches these days, doesn't it? Right? I uh, want to see it. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign shall be given to them but the sign of Jonah the prophet. He calls him a prophet, by the way. And just as Jonah was clearly saying it happened, in three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Christ would go into the grave, Jonah was in the belly of the whale. It's a true, genuine fact. And he says here, The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. These men who repented in the true story in Jonah, as we'll see that in chapter 3, they're going to stand up in judgment of the, of the generation that rejected Christ when he was in their midst, and they did not repent. We also see the Lord affirming this in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11. And so after hearing the Lord Jesus himself declaring that this is true, the historicity of Jonah and Jonah going in the whale three days and three nights and the repentance of the Ninevites, if you still don't believe it is true, then maybe you have a heart problem. Because those who don't know Christ, those who are not saved, those who do not have his word written on their hearts by the Spirit of God, because they've been saved, cannot understand the truth and do not understand the Lord Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. If you're a true believer, you hear the word of God and the spirit of God illumines that and you understand and you believe it. That's why we don't need to convince believers that evolution is not true. We don't need to convince them anything. It says in the scriptures, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you are a believer with the spirit of God, you're going to go, yeah, I believe it because it's true. And the same thing with the book of Jonah. But yet, if you still don't believe what the Lord Jesus says in his word, maybe you don't know the Lord. And God is gracious to illumine that for you so that you might be saved, because he desires all men to be saved. First John chapter 4, 6, We are from God, the apostle John writes, and he who knows God listens to us. Here's the word of God, right, from the apostles. He was not from God, does not listen to us. Here's how you can know. He says here, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We can know where the truth is and where and who is the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so then it is absolutely a true story in which we will see from this book has some very important uh, points for us to understand and to learn. Now, who is it that wrote the book of Jonah? We don't see anywhere in, in there, I so-and-so write this book, or whatever it might be. We don't see that. Uh, so who wrote it? Well, we know, first of all, it's not named, so that's probably not important then, if God doesn't name who it is. But we also know that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. It's all God-breathed. God wrote it that no men ever wrote scripture of their own will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. No one ever thought, hmm, I'm going to write up a story about what happened to Jonah. No, that's not true. No one ever did that. God inspired men by his Spirit to bring forth his word, as we will see, and we see here in this book. Now, who wrote this? Now, it's possible, if you look at this, it appears to be autobiographical. It appears to be that quite possibly Jonah wrote it. And I'm, and I'm going to posit to you that I think when we get to the end of the book, 
that Jonah probably did repent because people who repent usually share what they did wrong, you see. People who don't repent don't share what they did wrong. And Jonah is very clear in this book, the book of Jonah, it's very clear. It doesn't paint a very good picture of Jonah, does it? It shows all his sin and all his wickedness. And I believe quite possibly Jonah is the one who wrote it, but we do not know. But ultimately God does, and God was the one who brought it forth. So with that in mind, uh, we see what's going on here. Now, uh, what about Israel? What about Israel at this time? What was going on in in Israel? Well, as we're going to see, Israel was disobedient. Israel was on its way to exile. You see, the uh, because of Solomon and his sin, the kingdom was divided in 931, north and south, uh, Israel and Judah, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, 1 Kings chapter 11, two kingdoms. And after that point, every one of the northern kings was wicked, with a few exceptions in the southern kingdom in Judah. And it's during this time uh, in the divided kingdom that Jonah was a prophet during the northern king Jeroboam II's reign, which was sometime between 793 B.C. to 758. Remember, it goes backwards up to the death of Christ. Then we have A.D., right? B.C., before Christ, and then also after. And so we have uh, everything that we know about Jonah, besides the book of Jonah, is shared, as I mentioned, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 20, chapter 14. talks about him being... Uh, uh, a prophet of the Lord talks about him uh, being a a, a servant um, during this time and from Gaff Heifer, which is from the Galilee region. But we also see about Jeroboam II. He was a wicked man during the time of Jonah. He was a wicked man. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's his father, which made Israel sin. The northern kingdom was in great wickedness, and as God had declared in uh, Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, that if they continued in sin, they would be exiled, they would be brutally uh, disciplined by the living God. And certainly in 722, after being warned over and over again by the prophets of the impending doom because of their sin, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, the story of Jonah, the true story of Jonah, happens before this captivity, but it's getting close. It's getting close. Israel is on its way to judgment. Now, Jonah, the word means dove. And as we saw in 1 Kings, 2 Kings 14, he was a prophet. And although uh, he was a prophet and a servant, we're going to see he was a disobedient prophet initially and a disobedient servant. We will see that today. Now, with that in mind, Israel was spiraling into sin, but what about Nineveh? What about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh at the time of Jonah, we're going to see this a little later on as we look at Nineveh, but Nineveh were, the the inhabitants were were wicked, violent people, and they were on the road to judgment. We're going to see in our passage later on, the Lord tells Jonah to say, yet 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed for its wickedness. They're going to be destroyed. They are on the road to judgment. So then Israel is spiraling in sin on the way to God's, God's judgment, onto their exile. And Nineveh is on its way to judgment, and this is where Jonah comes in. And so within this, we're going to see that disobedience takes effort, and it also takes its toll. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. 
and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it with them to go to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind and the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Now today we're going to see three things. We're going to see God gives Jonah clear commands on how he is to serve him, how he is to obey him. Jonah takes great effort to disobey God, and then we're going to see God hurls a, a disciplinary response upon his, discipl- on a, on his disobedient uh, servant Jonah. So first of all, notice the clear commands. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, again, this is a phrase uh, that's used over 90 times in the Old Testament to speak of God declaring his truth to uh, to, uh, his people or, or a prophet to then share to his people. The word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, the I am, the self-existent one. It is God's word, the great I am. It is his word and it's unto or to Jonah. Now you might remember that before uh, Christ came and completed his work on the cross uh, and before we had the truth of God brought forth uh, and, and finalized in the scriptures that we have, we had prophets and then the prophecy of scripture. We had God speaking in many different ways in the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, God after he spoke uh, long ago to the fathers in the prophets. Now Jonah's one of them, right? In many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. We have the completed revelation. The revelation was partial, bit by bit, culminating in what Christ did for us. We now have the completed revelation in the word of God to which uh, uh, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so we have the word of God. But back in Jonah's day, God was speaking and revealing bit by bit, piece by piece. And here we have truth coming from God to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai. Now, Amittai means uh, truth or faithfulness, the son of truth, the son of faithfulness. Uh, we don't know what his dad was like, but uh, if he was like his name, he was a good guy. And we know that Jonah actually knew a lot about the Lord, although his view was skewed in his disobedience and unbelief. He did know a lot about the Lord. So the son of uh, truth, the son of uh, faithfulness in a sense, and we also know that he is the prophet and his servant, Second Kings chapter fourteen twenty-five. Now it's interesting to note uh, in the beginning here he doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Jonah the prophet. There are many other places in situations like this in Scripture, uh, such as Zechariah and Haggai and other places where it says the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. The word of the Lord came. Now here it doesn't say that. It just says it came to Jonah. But we know he's a prophet. And we know he is supposed to prophesy. But I think we get a little insight into what's really going on. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He's not acting like a prophet. We will see he does nothing to obey God in his prophetic uh, position in a sense. He does the opposite. Maybe there are some of you that are bond servants of Christ. You are truly his. You know him. You're a bond servant of his. But... You're not bond serving very well or very much. You're doing the opposite. 
And the Lord would, might not say to you, oh, you're a bondservant because of that, even though you are, right? Jonah was a prophet, but he's not acting like one. We're his bondservants. Are we acting like them? So the word of the Lord came forth, and then notice what? We have three clear commands. It couldn't be clearer than this. And by the way, we have clear commands in Scripture uh, given to us. Clear commands. Submit to the governments. A clear command. What? Submit in everything, right? Submit those things. Except for sin, we saw the qualifications in other places. We have clear commands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. We have clear commands. Do your work heartily unto the Lord and not unto men. We're, we're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and something. We have clear commands. And so Jonah gets some clear commands here. The clear commands. Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Three commands. Arise. Go and cry against it. So then notice we have the first two portions here. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. Arise and go to Nineveh and cry against it. Okay? Rise up. Walk or go, you could say there. So then, and he is to rise up, get moving, and go where? To Nineveh, the great city. Now you might remember from our introductory portion to Jonah last time that Nineveh was originally built by Nimrod, Genesis 10:12, And uh, we see that this same Nimrod was a, the great grandson of Noah, but he was also a mighty warrior and a, evidently a wicked man. Genesis 10.10, uh, 10, it says that in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. He's kind of the leader of the, of the revolt, probably in chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Later on in Micah chapter 5, verse 6, all of Assyria is referred to as the land of Nimrod, of Nimrod, right? So then Nineveh was a great city, an exceedingly great city we see later on in the book of Jonah, a three days walk. That's a big city. If you have to take three days to walk through it, that's a big, big city. And we also know in chapter 4 that there were 120 uh, infants or small children. They don't know the left from the right. They're right up and left. They're, they're so young, which meant there was probably about a half a million inhabitants or more in Nineveh. It was a big city, and it was probably around the modern Iraqi town of Mansul. That's the area that Nineveh was. And so at the time of Jonah, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians were the dominant world power of the day. And I find it interesting that God works through, in the Old Testament, you'll see this with Egypt, with Assyria, with Babylon, all the dominant world powers, God is working through and addressing things there. You see that with Moses in Egypt. You see it with, uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. You see it here in Assyria. God was addressing those world powers at that time. And so God was not just simply working with Israel. He was working on the nations too, but primarily his people were Israel, who were to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. So then we have, uh, at the time of Jonah, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the superpower of the day. The Assyrians were the dominant power, and Nineveh was about 500 miles northeast of Israel. That's a ways away. I think of how far is thing, how far are things? Well, from here down to the Bay Area. It's like about 700 miles. That's a long way. That's 10 hours by a car. Jonah didn't have a car. This is going to take a while. So we have a place that's quite a distance away, and he is. it's called the Great City, and he is to arise and go to Nineveh, the Great City, and cry against it. Now, 
that's kind of an interesting thought. Now, we can think of all the reasons why Jonah doesn't want to go. You know, it's too far. I'm embarrassed to say things to this great city, whatever it might be. Later on, we're going to see none of those things are true. Jonah just doesn't want them to be saved because he has an attitude towards them and their wickedness, as we're going to say. So God says, arise to go to Nineveh, a great city, cry. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates this word cry, caruso. Same word translated in the New Testament, preach or proclaim. Proclaim, preach against it, Jonah. Arise, go, and preach. Arise, go, and preach against it, Jonah. That's what God says. Very simple. Three things. And now he says preach actually against it. Against it. Which means he's going to say a message, give a message, as we'll see, that is uh, against Nineveh. And we're going to see that God is against Nineveh. And by the way, God is against sinners. Yes, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But if you are in your sins, you are at enmity with God. And we need to remember this in our evangelism when God opens the door. You are in a bad situation. God is against you because of your sin, but he sent his son Jesus because he loves you to take care of that sin. But there is the bad news before the good news. And so God says to go do it. Preach against them. We know in from uh, Romans chapter 5 that we were at enmity with God, right? We were, we, we were hostile to him, even though we were chosen and we were going to be saved. Before we were saved, because of our sin, we were at enmity. And the same thing with the sinners in Nineveh. Uh, and notice what he says. Cry against it, and here's the reason. For, this is, look at verse the end of verse 2, their wickedness has come up before me. Their wickedness, we'll see later on, their wickedness, their, their, their violence, their, the bloodshed, the lying, the deceit, you'll see that. It has come up before God. It is, it is, in a sense, in his face, and he can no longer take it, in a sense. It has come up before him. He's going to act upon it. He's going to act upon it. Now, let me share this. God is aware of everything we do. There's no hiding from him our sin. There's no hiding. This wickedness of Nineveh is right before him. Yes, he does not look upon sin as to approve it, but he sees everything. And it has come up in his presence. It's interesting, before me or in his presence, you know, that we'll see later on, Jonah fled the presence of the Lord. Well, this has come up in in a sense, it's before him. And so we see this wickedness. But what kind of wickedness was this? Well, the historians have all noted how the Assyrians were excessively brutal towards their, towards their enemies. And we also know of accounts of, accounts, uh, uh, of what they did to their enemies. Uh, very, very uh, physically brutal, uh, wicked people. But we also have an account from the Word of God, which is where I want to get my information because I know it's absolutely true. In the book of Nahum... This is, a, this is a generation after Jonah, so the repentant generation had died off, and this is a new wicked generation. They went back to their old ways, by the way. We see in Nahum, uh, the, the, the city is not a good place. Turn to Nahum chapter 2. Nahum chapter 2. He was trying to fan Jim. I'm sorry, Nahum chapter 3. And we don't go there very often. You may need to go to your little thing in the front there and find it, but... Uh, 
here we have God's declaration of the wickedness of Nineveh and what he's going to do about it, or about, uh, about this place. Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses, bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain and a massive corpse, the countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. The charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations her harlotries and families her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show the nations your nakedness and to all and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile. I will set you up as a spectacle, and it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you, saying, and say, Nineveh is devastated. We see a lot there. Obviously, they were wicked. They were vile. They were liars. Uh, they were sorcery, the sorceries. They're all, all the stuff that we see these days, right? Bloodshed, bloody city, full of lies, spiritual holotry, influencing the nations, including Israel, by the way. Nineveh was just like Satan, a murderer and a liar, right? John 8, just like Satan, right? And notice even the Ninevites themselves go to Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Even they, when they repent, declare how wicked they are. By the way, you know it's true repentance when uh, someone actually declares how sinful they are and they realize what they're being sent from, saved from. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Then Jonah began to go throughout the city in one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and then if it will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. I love this. We're going to see this later on, but I love this. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. And he issued a proclamation that said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call upon God earnestly that each may turn, listen to this, from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. They understood, the king understood what the wickedness was, right? He says, says here, who knows, God may turn and relent to withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. That's someone who's been convicted of their sin. I'm going to perish in my sins because of God's anger towards sin. But praise the Lord, as we'll see, God relents. And it is through Christ, ultimately, that we are delivered from our sin. So then, the call is clear. You've got a wicked, violent people. They're the enemies of Israel. By the way, Israel hated them. They're the enemies, but yet they were influenced by them, just like it was with all the other nations. Their, their enemies uh, of Israel influenced them spiritually in an evil way, but they also oppressed them. And here we see the same thing. So then he is to proclaim against it because of their wickedness, which has certainly gone up and unnoticed before the or gone up noticed uh, before the Lord. He has seen it. It is not gone. What I meant to say is, it is not gone unnoticed. The Lord has seen it. And folks, we need to grab a few principles from this uh, that will help us in our fear of the Lord God. 
because we can kind of slack off in our fear of the Lord at times when we forget the reality that he sees everything and knows everything, that our ways are before the Lord, our steps are before the Lord. You might remember if you are with us a few years ago, years ago when we went through Ezekiel, that uh, in chapters 8 and 9 we took a tour that no one wants to take. And we went through this portion in Ezekiel where God showed Ezekiel the elders of Israel's secret sins, their secret sins that they thought no one sees. And here's what they say. Then they said, son of man, or then he said, the Lord said to, to me, that's to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Do you see this? Each man in his room of his carved images. And this was in the temple in those rooms with carved images, probably sexual, very, very evil. Do you see this, son of man? Do you see the stuff they're doing in the dark? Uh, for many say, the Lord does not see. The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. They're in the dark, yet God sees. The reality is God sees our sin. He sees our sin. We need to think about that. We need to up our fear of the Lord by understanding the truth and reality of the living God. John chapter 3, verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. John 3, uh, 19. And the judgment, this is the judgment, that the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. That should be in every evangelism class. That's why people don't want to hear. It's not that they, they don't understand. They understand very clearly. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want it to be exposed. And so then we see here, uh, they commit their evil in the dark. And so they say, the Lord does not see. He does not see. But the reality is the Lord does see. And for us, our ways are before him and the ways of all mankind are before him. Let me share some passages that reveal this truth. David shares to his son in First Chronicles uh, 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole and willing mind. For the Lord searches the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Everything. You can't get away with anything. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. That was second, first, that was first Chronicles 28, 9. How about Isaiah 40, verse 27? Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice dimmy escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable, Isaiah chapter 40. Why do you say he doesn't see? Why do you say that? We know from Hebrews chapter 12 that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's nothing hidden, nothing hidden. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 12, by this, but beyond this, my son, the writing of books, he says, beyond this, and he says, be warned, the writing of books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Remember that. 
The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, either everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And I praise the Lord that I'm forgiven. I praise the Lord that my sin is covered. But I don't want to walk in a way that is 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 ignorant of the reality that he sees everything and is ignorant of the reality that my sin was that which was placed on Christ, that he died for my sins in his body on the cross. I don't want to take his grace for granted. The reality is God sees everything. Jeremiah sixteen seventeen. For my eyes are on their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. The reality is he sees. You know, the elders of Israel in their dark places with their, uh, for lack of a better term, pornographic visions or things on the wall that they were doing. Uh, The Lord sees. We need to up our fear of the Lord. Up our fear of the Lord in concerning our sin and recognize he sees everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Paul says, I don't even examine myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, yet I, by this I'm not acquitted. This is 1 Corinthians 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light those things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The Lord sees. He sees. And he saw all the wickedness of the Ninevites. He sees all the wickedness of mankind. Everything will be revealed. Secret sin that no one sees be revealed. So we need to heighten our awareness of of sin and then uh, recognize God will deliver us from that, confess when we fail, uh, understand that he is sovereign and sees all. So with this in mind, if you haven't been redeemed, if your sins are not covered by the blood of Christ, not saved by the grace of God, if you have not repented and placed your faith in Christ, your sin is not covered. God sees everything. And your sin is, is building up his wrath. It is, it is piling up, Romans chapter 2. And eventually someday he will judge you for your sin. But it is not your, his desire that you perish in your sin, but that you would be saved, that you would be saved. He will relent of his judgment if you trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Another, uh, another uh, application here. Um, Jonah was called to preach and proclaim against Nineveh. It's so clear. Jonah was not called to go to a five-week evangelism seminar on how to understand the Ninevite culture. You see, all cultures are sinful. All of mankind has sinned. Jonah was called to proclaim against Nineveh that God was going to judge them for their sin. We don't need to understand the cultures of those in the boonies to recognize it is sin that is the issue and God's judgment and then forgiveness of that sin through Christ Jesus. And lastly, one other principle I want to share. Sometimes serving him can be unpleasant. Sometimes serving him can be difficult. Sometimes what God asks of you to do 
is contrary, maybe a lot of the time, contrary to your own life and desire and will. He is calling Jonah to get up and go 500 miles to proclaim against the superpower of the day their sinfulness and God's judgment. That doesn't sound too fun. That doesn't sound too fun. That sounds extremely difficult. Sometimes what God calls us to do is difficult, but yet, as we will see, it is much more difficult to disobey him. It is much more difficult because God gives you the strength and the peace and the ability to do what he calls you to do if you do it with a willing heart. Now, one more thing. We don't want to just take passages out of context and run over to Portland. Yet 40 days, Portland will be overthrown. Well, that's not the reality. That's not God spoke specifically to Jonah about Nineveh, as we will say. Now, we do know in a general sense that, yes, every man will be overthrown if their sin is not dealt with. And we pray for opportunities to share why we have hope in Jesus Christ, why we have been delivered from God's judgment unto salvation. We pray for those open doors that we might be able to proclaim. Paul prayed for open doors for the gospel. Pray that he might say what he ought to say, and we ought to be doing the same. So then, back to our passage. Notice Jonah now at this point is told what to do. Three things. Arise, go, and proclaim against Nineveh. Um, But we have a problem here. Notice Jonah exerts great effort to disobey God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. Cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Hey, God sees it. But Jonah. Remember that. You'll see this throughout this book. But Jonah. But Jonah. And there are times where we might be able to put our name in there. God is saying, do this, but Greg. Greg did this instead. But so-and-so. But so-and-so. Remember that. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So then, but Jonah rose up. Go down, rise up, and go. But Jonah rose up. Jonah rose up. He arose, same word, but he arose to disobey. Sometimes we do that. We arise to disobey. God's clear truth for us, but we arise and go the different way. Jonah arose, and now he's on his way to Tarshish rather than Nineveh. Now, Tarshish was 2,500 miles west of Israel in what we would call Spain. And Jonah set his heart right away to go the opposite direction. And folks, note it takes great effort on Jonah's part to disobey God here. There's a lot of effort involved in this. There's a lot of effort involved. Notice our text says from the beginning, Jonah is is ultimately, he is fleeing from the presence of God. Or literally from the face of God, the presence of God. Now, the term presence of God throughout the Old Testament spoke of being in his presence in a sense, you know, spoke of fellowship, whatever it might be in that context. Uh, Later on, we're going to see in our passage that he's not necessarily thinking, hey, I'm going to flee and God's not going to see me anymore. He's not thinking that. He is fleeing later on. We'll see this. He's fleeing because, because he doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. That's really why he's fleeing. But ultimately, he's fleeing from the presence. You know, when we disobey, we effectively cut off our fellowship with the Lord. 
we're effectively leaving the presence of his walk with us. We're no longer walking with him. Yes, we have his spirit in us, but God is grieved. We're no longer with him in a sense. Jonah fleed the presence of God, he says here. And then notice what happens here. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Jonah probably came from the Galilee region. He was from Gath Hefer. That's the Galilee region. So he probably went, instead of going northeast to Nineveh, he goes southwest, 45 miles, to Joppa. And Joppa was a seaport in Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean. And so he went down. Notice the word down, down to Joppa. Later on, we're going to see he went down into the ship. Same word in Hebrew. And later on, when he's going down, he says in chapter 2, verse 6, I descended down into the roots of the mountains. Uh, possibly we're getting a little picture of what's happening. Jonah's going down. He is going down through his choices, as we will say. And if you choose to disobey God, you're going down. But God is a good God who will discipline even to the point of death to, to cause you to do what is right, that we would not be judged with the world, as we'll say. So then notice, uh, whenever we want to disobey God, something happens. And the same thing here with Jonah Guess what? When you want to disobey God, there's a, there's a wide open pathway for you, by the way. It's wide open. It's wide open. And this is where we get, some will even call it the, uh, the doctrine of Satan's providence. That when you want to disobey God, Satan will come along, he'll give you a really good way to go. A really good way to go. Not good in a good sense, but a good way to get away. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Jonah finds a ship. And by the way, he's working hard to disobey God. And with your working hard to disobey God, Satan's right there ready to help you out. There's a ship ready to go, the totally the opposite direction. Ready to go, guys. And notice he pays the fare and goes on board. He found going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He is going the opposite direction in his relationship with the Lord. If you're disobeying God, you're doing the same thing. You either walk with God or you don't. He's walking away from the presence of the Lord. He's not walking with the Lord. He's on his way to do his own thing. He is going his own way. And folks, we can usually accomplish in our flesh uh, what we want to do. We usually can. If you want to go do something in the flesh, you can probably do it. You can probably do it. Jonah sets his mind to go to Tarshish rather than obeying God. Went there, paid the fare. Tar- went to Joppa, paid the fare, got on board. And maybe some of you have made great effort to disobey God. Now, I'm not talking about just generalized flesh disobedience. You know, we all fail here and there throughout the day, whether it's a reaction, whatever it might be. We confess it. Little things we do, we fail. I'm talking about disobeying in big areas, in big areas. Jonah's disobedience was in the sphere of serving the Lord. He chose to do it his way, to go his way, rather than the way the Lord had said. And folks, we have throughout Scripture what God says we should be doing. We are to not forsake our assembling together. We're to be seeking ways to, 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 to fulfill and love and good deeds. First Peter chapter 4, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're to be serving the Lord. 
And some of you may have made great effort to not serve the Lord. You've made life choices that are opposite to serving the Lord God. And if you have, confess it. Because if you have and you're a believer, I know that you're in the midst of this storm right now until there is confession. There are other areas. For instance, uh, we're to do our work hardly unto the Lord, not to men. Some people are not working. You're disobeying God. Now, that's not because of circumstance, I would say. If it's circumstance, you're trying to work to get work, that's different. But if you're not working, you're disobeying God. And you're experiencing, if you're his, his his discipline. Maybe you are a, a, a mother and you have decided it is much easier to go work out in the world than to raise your kids, disobeying Titus chapter 2. Well, it takes great effort to disobey God. And you're going to see that God is a good God. And you may find yourself in the belly of the whale, uh, per se. So then, Jonah's disobedience was specific to the area of serving him as his mouthpiece. And so, why does he flee from the presence of the Lord? Why does he do that? Why does he do this? Why is Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Did Jonah actually believe that God wouldn't see what he was doing? Did he actually believe that, uh, that he could run away from the Lord? I don't think so. I think he was fleeing because of his, we will see, his unbelief and his lack of compassion and his understanding of what God would do. Turn to chapter 4 of Jonah. So God brings about a great storm, as we'll see next week, uh, and Jonah's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by the great fish. Then in chapter 2, his prayer from the belly of the whale. Then in chapter 3, he reluctantly obeys and preaches to the Ninevites. They get saved. And then we have chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What is he angry at? Ninevites being saved. Crazy, right? Well, we're just the same way. We're like Jonah in ways at times. And he prayed to the Lord and said, he's not trying to get away from the Lord here. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Here, now we got some insight and what he was saying to himself, in a sense, uh, when uh, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. He didn't want them to be saved. That's why he fled. Yes, he's running away from the presence of the Lord. He's actually separating from the Lord in a sense of his walk with him going the other way. But here's why he did it. To forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that thou art gracious and compassionate. Maybe he got that from his dad, uh, Mr. Faith, right? Or Mr. Trust, right? Amittai. He says, therefore, uh, thou art a gracious God, compassionate God, slow to anger, bunny and loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. That's why he left. Because he had such a hatred and a lack of compassion for these people that he would rather see them blown up by God in judgment than to be saved. That's really what's going on. Jonah was so much like the Israelites at that time, and maybe like us at times. So then, Jonah's messed up, and I believe uh, we are messed up at times too. We take on the same attitudes, and God wants to weed those out of us so that we don't get in the weeds of the whale and the, and the under, under the water in his judgment. So then, notice what happens here. He flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, with this in mind, again, maybe there are some of you who are fleeing from the presence of the Lord, in a sense, through your actions. You are just living your life your way. You choose where you live. You choose where you work. It's not sovereignly given over to God. Lord God, what do you want me to do? I'll serve you wherever you want, whatever you want me to do. You, you choose that yourself. God is a good God. He is the sovereign. We are not the sovereign. Whether it's with your families, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, the Lord has called us to serve him, to serve him. We have been saved to serve the living God. And God is a gracious God who also, as we see, loves his children, and he disciplines those in whom he loves. He disciplines that we would share, as we saw, in his holiness. So with that in mind, what happens in our passage? What happens? Notice, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. Cry against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Great effort. Great effort. And please just examine your hearts. Are you making great effort to choose to do what you want to do over what God would be calling you to do? Whether it's where you live, where you work, what you do, uh, with your children, whatever it might be, whatever it might be. And then notice what the Lord does, because the Lord's a good God. The Lord loves us, and he is good. He is good. And the Lord, verse 4, hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. The Lord hurled a great wind. He hurled a great storm. He brought forth a great storm. You see, Scripture is clear that if we're the Lord's, we're going to be disciplined. And Jonah is the Lord's, and God is going to discipline him, we'll see. And he's going to discipline him, as we'll see in the next few weeks, to the point even of death. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And some of you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he receives. And we see later on that he does this, that we would share in his holiness. And that's what he's doing in Jonah's life, and we're going to see it. And we have this example so that we would not go the way of Jonah, that we would not go as far as he went. Some of you are maybe in a great storm right now. Uh, You have fled from the sphere in which God desires you to serve. Whether as a believer you made a choice to to marry a non-believer or whatever it might be, there's all kinds of illustrations. Whether you're a, a mother and you decide to go out and work in the workforce rather than raise your kids. Whether you're a man, you're not working, you're not providing for your family. Whether it's at church, you're not serving in the capacity that God has called you to serve, to love the body of Christ. You're choosing to go your own way to your own Tarshish, and it's opposite of God's way. 
Well, if that's the case, it's taking a lot of energy to do that. And God's a gracious God who wants you to see that so that you and I, that we, if we do so, would repent and that we would be right with the Lord and share in his holiness. Well, what about those of us believers who are following the Lord, sacrificing, doing what he wants to do? We know in our heart of hearts we've yielded them over to him. We're doing what he wants us to do. There's no strings. There's no but this, but that. There's just, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Wherever you want me to go, I'll do it. What about us? Remember, it's difficult. It's difficult to serve the Lord. It's difficult to serve the Lord in your marriage, to love your husband. It's difficult to 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 respect uh, and love your wives, or vice versa. Love and respect your husbands and then love your wives. It's difficult at times. It's difficult to do your work hardly unto the Lord. It's difficult uh, to serve and expend your time in the body of Christ rather than doing the things you want to do. It's difficult, but there is... Um, there is reward for your work. Let me share this. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And because of the forgiveness of sins in Christ, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If you're serving the Lord, you're working hard, you're expending your energy for Christ in your marriage, at church, at work, and in your school, you're expending it for Christ. There is reward for your work. There's reward for your toil. Your toil is not in vain. So then, uh, we have seen here that disobedience takes its toll, takes its toll. But what about unbelievers? What do we see here for those who don't know Christ? The reality is the wages of sin is death. That God will judge sin, he will judge sinners. And that there is a day in which judgment will come. But God is a gracious God who sent his son and he poured out our sins on him. God the son, Jesus, took the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. And he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And God is satisfied with Jesus' work for sin. And therefore, if we just acknowledge our sin like the Ninevites did and we turn to God, he will relent of his judgment and you will be forgiven of your sins. So then, we've seen the twofold message of Jonah so far. To the non-believer, you're on the road to judgment. And to the believer, are we like Jonah? Are we like Jonah? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. And I think we can all say in, in some manner at times we are like Jonah, whether it's large or small. And I pray that we would be convicted as we study through this that you would use it to make us more like your son, Jesus. That there be no areas of rebellion in our lives where we are going the opposite way, whether it's in our marriage, at work, where we live, how we serve, everything, Lord. I pray there'd be nothing in the opposite way. That we would all be doing what you desire us to do in your presence, Lord God, for your glory. Help us to trust you in all things and to obey you in all that you've called us to do.
Christ in your precious name. Amen.